welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is Wednesday of the last week of the regular season of college football, and obviously we want to talk playoff rankings at some point, but there's also some big news in the coaching world. Tuesday night, Oregon fired Mark Helfrich, and so to talk about that, Bruce, why don't we bring on our favorite person in the whole state of Oregon? Oh, smooth. Very smooth. You know. Is that Chantel Jennings? Oh! Ouch. Ouch. I'm hanging up. I'm hanging up and I'm never offering to babysit your kids again. It's our not-too-old friend, Lindsay Schnell. Sports Illustrated's Lindsay Schnell. She covers national college football, but she's based in Portland and obviously has a good read on both Oregon and Oregon State. And I'm curious, Lindsay, you actually wrote a column, I want to say a few weeks ago, even as things were falling apart there, that you thought they should keep Mark Halfridge, that it would be dumb for them to fire him after four years. Did that ever change? Do you still feel that way? You know, the more I've looked at it and I've looked at recruiting, I think it was ridiculous to get rid of him after one bad season. You know, no one's calling for Mark D'Antonio's head. Um, at Michigan State, I think he should have been given a year to fix things. You know, they're on their third defensive coordinator in four seasons. They had a ton of injuries this year. You know, people talked about their defensive line wasn't good. They had like seven defensive linemen who got hurt and missed games. They never had the same group of kids going through the entire season. They started four redshirt freshmen on the offensive line and a true freshman at quarterback. Um, Yeah, but I also don't think that Oregon is a top 15 job. So who are you going to get that you know is going to do a better job than Mark Helfrich? And, you know, you're paying Mark almost $12 million. It's 11.6 how are you going to justify that and bring someone new in? So, And I thought that when they didn't do it right away, that they had sort of come to their senses and they weren't going to fire him. But instead, they just let him twisting in the wind, let him go recruit, and then brought him home last night to fire him. Yeah, I'm curious as to what you guys thought. The, the way it was handled, obviously, Stu, I think you were the one who had who had did a screenshot of the release or whatever that was. Oof. <laughs> that was a rough, rough moment. Yeah, it didn't feel like anything we've seen from a coach being fired, least of all a guy who, you know, I know that the nice guy part probably only matters to, you know, really to us, whether you deal with somebody or not. But it just seemed like it's a very cold, and I'm sure in retrospect, it looks like something Oregon, I think they had taken it down, that, that, uh, that release. But it was just kind of like it added insult to injury there. What happened there was, I think that was a very interesting moment in kind of the evolution of a lot of these schools' communications departments where they hire uh, former newspaper writers that covered the team to write for their own site. And in this case, Rob Mosley covered the team for a long time for the Eugene paper. Um, And he wrote that story like you would write a newspaper story about a coach being fired, where it started out reading like a press release with the quotes and everything, and then it just got into everything that he did wrong over the last couple of years, blowing the lead in the Alamo Bowl, uh, too many two-point conversions against Nebraska, failing to develop a quarterback. It was just it was just brutal. But then he and, changed it. He went back and deleted it. Well, I think after the, the outcry about right. it, because it's the blurry line, right, between when it's somebody like that, are they supposed to write a critical article or are they supposed to write a press release? All I know is... That article, whether it was intended to be or not, 
was the way Oregon announced to the world that he was being fired. So in my mind, that's a press release. This is how you're announcing Agreed. it. And it included, and it just threw him under the bus. It just, it was just such a bad look. Yeah, I thought it was brutal um, and interesting because I think that there were a lot of people at Oregon that didn't think Mark should be fired. Um, people who uh, work with him on an everyday basis, coaches and people within the athletic department who thought he should have been given another year. And then it's like, let's just kick you uh, while you're down, buddy. You know, I feel really bad for Helfrich. He's an Oregon guy. This is just going to cut him to the bone. He said on Sunday morning when he met with reporters that he hadn't slept since they had lost the night before. And I'm sure it's because he thought his job was you know, that he was going to be fired. And it's just amazing. I wrote this and this, it reminds me a lot of when they fired Ernie Kent from the basketball team a few years ago in terms of it's a, what have you done for me lately business and taking Oregon to heights that had never been and then expecting that all the time. And Helfrich said himself Saturday night after the civil war, you know, nobody is safe. And Paul Meyerberg wrote this too, that you coaches, this should be scary for you. (laughs) You coach a Heisman winner and you go to the title game two years ago and now they're kicking you out the door. So I was just, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the upshot that some, uh, some fans will go, well, he's making $11 million on the way out. And, and, you know, that still doesn't mean that it doesn't take away the expectations are ridiculously high and this was, uh, you know, what Lindsay said is true. It was, it was one down year. This is a guy who won 33 games in the previous three seasons and one bad year, and they're pulling the plug. Um, going forward, which direction do you guys think that they will go? Um, you know, I had kind of tweeted some of these names who I think are serious candidates. One is Jim McElwain from Florida. He's a Pacific Northwest guy from Montana. Uh, who, by the way, has a new AD, was not the one who hired him at Florida. Uh, P.J. Fleck is a hot name. Now he's only 35, and it's a huge jump to go from the MAC right up to a, to a you know, traditional you know, elite program like Oregon's been the last decade or so. Uh, there's another name that I've heard from multiple people, and that's Greg Schiano, who's on the Ohio State staff and did a really good job at Rutgers for a decade. I think that was kind of a curveball to people because we associate with Oregon, you know, cutting edge offense. So I'm fascinated to see how this goes because what I have heard is that they thought they were going to get Tom Herman. And when that didn't happen, they didn't really have a backup plan. Which, if you paid attention to the basketball search a few years ago when they ultimately hired Dana Altman, they got multiple coaches extensions and raises at their other schools in the process because they publicly pursued Mark Few, Tom Izzo, Brad Stevens, who was then at Butler. And it was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. What is going on? So now is it going to be similar to that? I agree with you, Bruce, that the... Going with a defensive-minded coach would be weird, but, you know, ADs a lot of times want to do something different, right? And the defense has been pretty bad the last couple of years. Again, I maintain that three defensive coordinators in four years, of course, you're going to have problems. And they switched schemes this year, and they had a lot of guys who didn't pan out that were veterans that were Chip's recruits, just so we're clear. Beloved Chip Kelly was not perfect. But I think that if you brought in a guy who suddenly wanted to, like, huddle on offense, fans would 
flip out. Um, Dana Holgerson is a guy that makes a lot of sense to me, but when, uh, Jim McElwain's name started being floated, I thought, oh, that does make sense. And it's interesting because Aaron Fentress from Comcast, my favorite colleague of all time, who I used to work with at the Oregonian, we went to breakfast before the civil war and we made a list of what are the better, what jobs in the country are better than Oregon's. And we got into a disagreement about Florida because I said, I'm not convinced it is a better job. It's in the SEC, but they have some really old facilities. So do you guys think that Florida is a better job than Oregon or are they about the same? First of all, I just want to go back for a second. Why would on earth would they think they could get Tom Herman? Uh, Because they're delusional. Well, and LSU fell for the same thing. I just... Don't you guys listen to the Audible? Like, we've been telling you all year, done deal. If they fire Charlie Strong, they're going to hire Tom Herman, and, and you guys can't get him. Anyway, um, I think to the point you made about they're going to flip out if they bring in a guy who huddles, once you decide to fire Mark Helfrich, you're basically saying you're starting over, and I don't care what system you bring in. Um, you just want the best coach, regardless of the system. You can't say, well, we're not winning enough games we want you to find somebody else who will win more games with the same system. So there's that point. Florida is clearly a better job than Oregon. Uh, Florida is in the richest talent state in the country That's with all true. the resources you could ever want. Um, I mean, to me, it's one of the top five to ten jobs in the country. Okay, let me ask you guys this, because you have both covered college football longer than I have, uh, certainly on the national picture, and you both spent more time in SEC country, partially because you both used to live on the East Coast. I do not think that Oregon realistically can compete for a college football playoff spot every year. Do you guys? I mean, I, I feel like this this whole thing is like Chip came in, he had something new and different. They were flashy. They had these great facilities, right? They had the cool uniforms. They ran this up-tempo offense. Everyone has nice facilities. Everyone has cool uniforms. And a lot more people run this offense now. And there's no natural recruiting base here in the Northwest. And let's call spade a spade. There is no diversity in the state of Oregon. It's a huge problem. And I think that that is a mark against them. A lot of great points to digest there. I think that Chip Kelly, that was a lightning in a bottle era that, frankly, I kind of knew from the beginning Mark Helfrich was never going to please the fan base because nobody was going to replicate what Chip Kelly did. It's like following Wooden. Wow. I mean, I mean, he was there for four years, but what? But in that time, in the span of those four years, or maybe go back when he was the OC, um, yeah, he convinced not just people in Oregon, all around the country, that this was now an elite program, and it was going to be this way forever. They were just going to keep winning 11, 12 games a year, and that's never realistic. But I think you're painting a much more negative picture than, I mean, I'm somewhere in between. That, that was a something's probably not going to be replicated. They're not going to be able to be an annual playoff contender, but they can be a playoff contender. They were in the national championship game two years ago. So, you know, I think the Pac-12 is getting tougher. Chris Peterson clearly is building a juggernaut at Washington. Um, Stanford's not going away. USC's never going to go away. Colorado's got it going now. But why can't Oregon be in the mix to be a Pac-12 title contender most years? Well, I just want to say this. They went to the playoff with the best player in program history, a transcendent player in Marcus Mariota, who won the Heisman, who Mark Helfrich recruited (laughs) and helped develop. And now they have a stud freshman in Justin Herbert. And 
that doesn't seem to matter. Like the, the problem, in my opinion, you're right. Like, I, I don't know that anyone could have stepped in after Chip and pleased the fan base. But the fan base wants to blame Helfrich for the recruiting woes, for the fact that they haven't, you know, I looked today. So since Helfrich took over, you know, his first full class was 2014. They've been ranked 23, 17, 28, and their class right now is ranked 36, but they don't have that many commits. But, and you know, when Chip was there, they were 34, 13, 9, 16. They were 22 in 2013, which is the class that Chip oversaw. So people want to blame Helfrich for the recruiting problems, but they don't want to give him credit for Mariota, for Herbert. And that, I don't think you can have it both ways. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way it works, where people really just want some level of venting to say, you know, look, this is like the expectations are sky high now at Oregon, which is a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I think your Mark D'Antonio uh, analogy is not a bad one. You know, no one's thinking he's, you know, he's in jeopardy there. I mean, Mark D'Antonio has done a terrific job. And, you know, at some point, I just don't think, you know, it's a... Uh, I don't know. This is a bad way to say it, but you know, life is not fair when it comes to these things. And you just kind of, we end up going around in circles. Well, guys, if you had to handicap it right now, who do you think? Who do you think will be the next coach of the Oregon Ducks? Well, this morning I saw that there was some, so we're recording this Wednesday morning. Someone tweeted a, one of the flight tracker, stupid things. I hate that. About, uh, looks like a, a plane from Eugene is flying to Notre Dame. So is it going to be Brian Kelly? I mean, I think that it's going to be a sitting head coach. And I do wonder if in all of the, cause even if there's not a ton of big time jobs open, there's going to be, you know, a domino effect. Is there a sitting head coach who we're not thinking of that's going to say, I don't want to be here anymore and run to Oregon, similar to when like Mike Riley left Oregon State and shocked everyone and went to Nebraska. Um, but I still think Dana Holgerson makes a lot of sense, and I think that after the year he had at West Virginia, he is due for, uh, I mean, certainly a raise at the very least, but a better job. And I do think Oregon's a better job than West Virginia. Although I'm, you know, he doesn't really have any recruiting ties out here and that's 80 percent of the game is recruiting but you can hire around that right so i'm higher on pj fleck than bruce is you know i think he's a he's a rising star and i think it would make he, he could make a lot of sense he would come in and energize that fan base but i like the shiano possibility and and Lindsay, you said it's got to be a sitting head coach he's not a sitting head coach but he has obviously right. been a head coach and and that guy can coach uh look where rutgers is right now how awful that program is, and think about the fact that he once won 11 games at <laughs> Rutgers. And, of course, he coached in the NFL not very long. And then look at Ohio State's defense right now. Given everything they lost from last year's team, I mean, that defense is unbelievable, and it's clearly his influence. I think – and I also just like the fact that he's a kind of a no-nonsense guy. Uh, you know, how do you – we, we've spent a lot of time on here talking about appeasing maybe a, a fan base that's become a bit delusional – feel like he would come in and maybe you know with that no-nonsense approach kind of put a put a lid on that for a while. Stu I have to say this really fast the other thing about him that you bring up I do think that one of the problems under Helfrich is they weren't disciplined and I think that was on and off the field and you need someone who's going to come in and just lay down the law because Chip didn't let guys get away with stuff Helfrich did 
And I think that going back to something like that and, you know, herb, God, if you work for urban, it's like everyone wants you. And I don't think that people want to tick off urban. I think all of urban's players have a very healthy fear of him. And so you bring Shano in and maybe you instill that. Yeah. Greg Shano has no problem stepping on toes or getting things done the way he wants them to. Uh, if I had to guess, and this is purely a guess, the McElwain one intrigues me the most right now, just because it's a, you know, it's the move from Florida, who leaves Florida for, you know, a job that's not USC in the Pac-12. That's the one that, you know, intrigues me the most. Um, you know, it's interesting to me, I thought about this when I heard all the Shiano rumblings in the last 24 hours is Shiano is the mentor to PJ Fleck. Part of me thought, I wonder if some of this dialogue between Phil Knight and Greg Schiano is vetting of PJ Fleck as much as anything else, but I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting if it somehow did come down to those two, the Jedi and the Master, if you will? Oh, God. Um, well, I, I like this. I will tell you that Greg Schiano actually was one of the people that USC interviewed last year. And, you know, I, again, I think it's been a while because people think of him from the Bucks or Stu kind of said, people don't realize how good of a job he did at Rutgers and how god-awful Rutgers was before he took over there. And, you know, I don't know if this matters at all to Oregon. I'm sure they'll, they would tout it if they hired him. Shiano's reputation academically is as strong as any coach in college football for what he did at Rutgers, too, by the way. Mm, intriguing. I like the fact that we all said somebody different. Uh, it's a much more interesting and fluid coaching search. Speaking of fluid, the stuff that's going into the recording of this podcast right now, <laughs> I don't know how much of it's going to make it onto the final version, but... I mean, I would think listeners of the Audible right now, the only, the only question they want answered more than Oregon's coach is when are they ever going to finish repairing Bruce's roof? <laughs> this has been going on for what seems like an eternity. I find it entertaining. I just want you to know that this has been, I've been hopeful that I could be a guest someday on this podcast since I've been a loyal listener forever. And Stu, I've been listening to your podcast for literally years and this is just even better than I anticipated, partially because of a lot of stuff that will likely be cut out, but I'm enjoying it at the very least. Well, we appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you bearing with us. Um, you can listen to another great podcast, the Campus Rush podcast on SI with Lindsay and Andy Staples. Uh, download that on iTunes where you download our podcast and find all her great work on SI.com. Lindsay, thanks for coming on. All right, that was a good conversation we had with Lindsay, and Bruce has since relocated from his house that always seems like it's under attack from roofers to his car, and that is where we are going to do our favorite segment of the podcast, the mailbag. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. Bruce, this is not going to be a surprise to you. we got a whole bunch of Ohio State playoff-related questions. And that will allow us to address this week's rankings, but we're not going to do all of them, obviously. Sean Tholstrup, Pierland or Perlin, Texas? Perlin, right? Pierland, Texas. Pierland. Pierland, okay. After watching your playoff committee television show, thanks for watching, and listening to you all ridiculously consider putting in a team that finished third in their division, I guess that's Michigan, is there a future where the conferences will take some amount of control of the yearly out-of-conference scheduling and or set up a series with other conferences based on the previous year's rankings. It seems like the main separation between many of the teams in consideration in your mock committee 
with their non-conference schedules, and not being able to control that has to drive the power brokers in the sport mad. I do not think that will happen. I do not think we'll have some kind of like basketball version of the ACC Big East Big Ten Challenge or anything like that. I just don't think that the, you know, to me, the, the closest thing you might get to a fix for some of these issues would be for them to expand the playoff down the road to eight teams. Uh, short of that, I don't see the schedules are going to be kind of all over the map, you know, literally, right? Right. If you really want some sort of uniformity, you could either contract the conferences. So we go back to the good old days where everybody plays everybody else in their conference and there's a, you know, no question who the champion, who the best team in the conference is. Uh, or they would expand the playoff. And as you know, I don't want them to expand the playoff, though I concede it's inevitable one day. Um, the other thing I would say is the Big Ten and the Pac... Was it the Pac-10 then? Maybe the Pac-12 by then. Actually, at one point agreed, about five years ago, to something like what he just said. I don't know if it would have been based on the previous year's rankings, but they were going to do a scheduling series where every Big Ten team would play a Pac-12 team every year. And... I don't remember how it went down exactly. I mean, they announced it. They sent out the press release and everything, and then like three months later said, oh, we can't, we're not going to do it after all uh, because some of the Pac-12 schools weren't on board. It just, everybody's got, I've said this before about out-of-conference scheduling. It's not all about playoff positioning. Some schools need more home games than others to balance their budget. Um, some schools can't afford the, the guarantee games to certain teams. Some schools... You know, some schools don't have a big enough stadium to get another big name school to come to their stadium. So I think that the best you can hope for, and this has already happened, is some sort of regulations. And so the Big Ten now has a requirement. I think almost all the power conferences now have a requirement that you have to schedule at least one other power five team. Uh, the Big Ten, I believe, is the only one that now has a rule against FCS teams. Uh, but, you know, it's luck of the draw, you know, whether the team you schedule you know, it worked out great for Ohio State. Oklahoma turned out to be a really good team. Uh, that worked out great for them. I'm trying to think of an example of a flip side this year. When I'm sure when Nebraska scheduled Oregon, they thought they'd be a lot better than four and eight. You know. Yeah, when you schedule Notre Dame, you think they'd be a lot better than yeah. four and eight as well. Exactly. So, and there's no obviously there's no way to to solve that. But I mean, one thing that drives me crazy is why they continue to schedule these games a decade in advance. I mean. It's ridiculous, you know. In basketball, they schedule them that summer. Maybe that's a little too unrealistic, yeah. but you know, at least if you were doing it two or three years out instead of ten years out, you might have a better sense of what kind of team you're going to get. Uh, Seth in Arizona. The first part of this is really going to bother you, Bruce, but I I kept it to get to the second part. Stuart and Bruce, you cannot be serious about the Michigan Ohio State game. Great game. I'll give it to you. The score was close, and therefore some element of excitement. But the play on the field was either bad or boring. What I saw was Ohio State runs the quarterback draw two out of three plays every series, place kicker missing give-me's, interceptions that look like designed passes to the other team, and yes, bad officiating. I would assume we both disagree with him on that. No, I, yeah. I mean, look, there's no – no matter what game you're at, you know, if you see high-level execution or whatever, I mean, somebody else will go, oh, there's bad defense or, you know, people who like – remember those uh, – I thought the LSU-Alabama game was riveting. I thought it was – and my point was there just weren't a lot of missed tackles in it. But there were also some really bad passes, too. Yeah. Um, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I don't, you know, like, if you don't like it, that's okay. If you love it, that's okay, that's good and all. But, you know, I don't I don't get too caught up. And we all have, you know, I, we remember the tension between the teams right. more than anything else and just how, you know, how each play seems to matter more than, than the last. Yeah, in college football, oftentimes it's the mistakes that contribute to the tension. I mean, some of the 
most memorable plays in, in college football history were, were mistakes like Michigan, Michigan state last year. So I don't think that means it's a bad game, but here's the, here's a more interesting point that he makes. By the way, we may have seen this before in 2006, Michigan, Ohio state played as one and two Michigan loses, goes to the Rose bowl and is wiped up by USC. And then Ohio state goes to the national championship and loses badly to Florida. Could the big 10 be exposed over the next four to six weeks? I mean, here we are debating whether there's going to be three Big Ten teams in the playoff, and you never know. Could could that be setting up for that? It's entirely possible. We'll see. I mean, history says in the last few years that's what's happened, in the last, whatever, seven or eight years. We'll see. I mean, you know, we never had four teams in the top seven. Right. Like this from this league, so we'll see. Do you think they're going to be exposed? I think the possibility – there's no reason to think that right now. Could it happen? Certainly. You know, I would point to this. I do remember the Michigan-Ohio State game in 2006. It was 42-39. It was a great game. It was an exciting game. And I don't think anybody really stopped to, to go, you know what? Maybe those defenses aren't as good as we thought they were. And then they got exposed right. to the championship game. I think the corollary to that this year would be, you know, Ohio State has had a lot of games now where their passing game was, was non-existent. You know, JT Barrett basically became a running back in the second half of that game. So certainly – if they do make the playoff, and we think they will, you know, that could become their, their fatal flaw. Uh, Michigan, uh, I think, is okay on offense, but they're certainly not as explosive as some of the other teams in contention. Could that work against them? Sure. But I, my, my answer to all this would be, who is it out there that you think is being, if you think these teams are overrated, who is being dis- discounted at their expense, right? Yeah. There's not an obvious, you know, I think Clemson might be overrated. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe Clemson would play Ohio State in the playoff and beat them by three touchdowns. I don't know. But I don't know that there's an obvious uh, – this, this Seth who wrote this is a USC fan, and I would say one great example of what he's talking about was in 2008, the USC team with uh, Ray Maluga, Brian Cushing, uh, Clay Matthews. Like that was a great team that lost one game to Oregon State and, and never got considered for the BCS title game after that. And I do believe they – could have, I don't know if they would have, could have beaten Florida in the national championship game. There's not a team like that right now that stands out to me. Yeah. All right, next. Why don't we do a non-playoff question? Robert Lewis Hastings, what do you think of the Baylor head coaching search? Why would any hot up-and-coming coach take the job when Baylor is currently so toxic? I mean, clearly um, Chad Morris felt that way to some extent. Yeah, I, well, look, Chad Morris is also 5-7, and seven in his second year in two and 10. I mean, I don't know if he's definitely felt that way or maybe they've cooled on him. You know, it could go both ways there. Uh, you know, as it relates to, you know, whether it's a Sunny Dykes or perhaps, you know, some other guys, Larry Fedora, I think, you know, you're still talking about a school that is in a very fertile recruiting place. Lots, there are lots of head coaches who have Texas roots and they may want to get back to those roots. You have terrific facilities, a brand new stadium. Now there are some, significant challenges here. You're talking about a program that that's coming out of a horrific scandal. You're going to talk about probably having back-to-back, you know, almost empty recruiting classes. Not that there was nobody in the, in the 2016 signing class, but it's about, a, you know, 10 or 11 guys. That's not much. And you only have one commitment right now. So, you know, there's going to be some serious challenges with, with Baylor going forward. Uh, you know, so I think it's going to take a guy who really wants to wants to be back in the state of Texas really bad to jump in the middle of that. Sonny Dykes is an interesting one to me because 
And now I know there's a tie there with Mac Rose. He's interviewed him before, at least at Missouri, and I want to say at Houston as well. At that... Houston, too. So third time's a charm, maybe. But, you know, he has not had a great run at Cal by any means, by any stretch of imagination. And if that's who Baylor gets, you know, I like Sonny, and I think he could do a good job there. But to me, that would all almost speak to what um, what he's saying, and that is that the best they can get right now? Might be. I mean, maybe if they can get Mike McIntyre, who's got a senior-heavy team. You know, I think his daughter goes to goes to Baylor. Uh, he fits the profile in terms of you know, uh, you know, it's a faith-based university, and he's a very spiritual guy, uh, and he's a terrific coach. That, I think that would be a home run hire for him. Mike McIntyre, if he does that, is clearly a glutton for punishment. First, he first he did a massive rebuilding job at San Jose State. Then he did a four-year just complete uphill climb to get Colorado to this point, and then he would be saying, "Okay, for my next challenge, I want to go take over a program going through a you know gutting scandal that has left them with one recruit right now." I mean, don't you ever want to just stay somewhere and win some games for more than one year? Yeah, I mean, look, sometimes coaches. Want, I mean, we had this conversation before we did a Gary Anderson game at Oregon State this year. He loves the building part and talked about how much he loved the building part. And certain guys are that way. Maybe Mike is that way as well. If we weren't having some technical difficulties there with Lindsay, I wanted to ask her a question about Oregon State. You know, that's She follows them, obviously, just as closely as Oregon. And it seems to me they had a nice, uh, while they didn't go to a bowl, they had a nice uh, uptick in their second season under Gary Anderson. Um, okay, we're about to get a question about one of your favorite players in college. Your Scooby Wright of 2016. Isaac, hey, Stuart and Bruce, how in the world is Derek Barnett not a finalist for the Benaric over Miles Garrett? Barnett has had 10-plus sacks in three consecutive seasons, the first SEC player ever to do that. I just don't get it. Second question, is there any reason for Vols fans to be optimistic about Butch Jones in the future? He is not recruiting well anymore. His offensive staff has wasted an enormous amount of talent. He isn't an aggressive coach. He even broke Bob Shoup. <laughs> Uh, I think injuries broke Bob Shoup because all you had was Derek Barnett. You missed, you know, the bulk of the back seven that I think was, you know, you're counting on. Um, as far as Derek Barnett goes, I know he got one one first place vote for the Lombardi Award. I can tell you that. So there you go. Uh, Are you allowed to disclose that? I hope so. Spencer runs the Lombardi thing, so, <laughs> so if I'm not, we're gonna have we have more awkwardness in our TV crew than just me and Brando. So. Um, I think that those awards take them with a grain of salt. I mean, you don't know who's voting on them. And all of those awards name their finalists, I want to say, the day before the Houston-Louisville game where Ed Oliver went out and just, you know, was a one-man wrecking crew. And I was like, well, too bad, too late. Can't win the uh, Lombardi, can't win the Nagurski. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he would anyway, but... Now that's a Houston award. And it's true. And obviously it's a Houston kid just killing people. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think... I wonder if the list would look differently if they'd waited. Um, hello, Stu and Bruce. When I hear people in the sports media advocate for an eight-team playoff, it seems like they're mostly people that focus more on the NFL. Do you guys hear many people that cover college football or the power brokers of the sport still pushing to expand the playoff to eight teams? Thanks, Andy Davis. I think that's a very astute observation. I've, I've found it to be I the same thing. I don't think it is because I, I... – I mean, Kyle Whittingham, the other, you know, a couple of weeks ago, talked to us about, you know, pushing for the playoff to expand, thinking it should. Well, in terms of media, I do feel like the the I've 
you know, everybody was pretty much united. Not everybody, but almost everybody in the, the cover Dude, college football. I'm going to break news. I think I would prefer an 18 playoff. Well, if that's the case, then you've changed your stance on it. You've definitely said on this podcast, I believe earlier this season, that you were a 14 playoff guy. Yeah, now, I don't, here's the thing. I don't know if you get and say, okay, we can't have conference title games then, but I think there should be the five conference champs and, and three at-larges. Well, then I don't think we can continue this podcast. <laughs> we could not be more <laughs> feel more differently about that. So you're saying, just to be clear, you're saying that if uh, Virginia Tech wins the ACC title game this, this weekend, they should automatically have a chance to play for the national championship. A team that lost to Syracuse, Georgia Tech, 45-24 to Tennessee. Throw it all out. Let them play yeah, for the national you know, championship. You're making, you know, look, you're making a good point. I think the issue I would have is maybe there wouldn't be conference title games then, which is something I've heard other coaches say. You know, it would be one less game, and you would decide the conference champ based on the regular season. Now, I don't know how you break a tiebreaker in that case, though. Yeah, well, your issue there, again, like I said earlier, is because the conference has gotten so big, uh, you they can't all play each other. I mean, the, the the reason for having the divisions in the first place is so that if there is, if you know, you think of, um, I think of Kansas, the year Kansas Here's had that. Problem, admit- Here's my problem with this. If Penn State or Wisconsin, but certainly Penn State, if they win the Big Ten title this weekend, they beat Ohio State the head-to-head. They were the division champs, and they beat them. You know, I think that's a tough message to send saying, hey, the conference title doesn't matter at all. Because that's what you're saying. The conference title doesn't matter at all. Well, I didn't play head to head. Here we go again. It's not that it doesn't matter at all, but I definitely think. It I, doesn't I, matter if the, at all. No, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's that, how do I say this? I, I think I said this during the show. I tweeted this during the show. Does anybody remember in college basketball? Does anybody even remember who wins the conference championships each year? No. It's, it's become greatly devalued because of the NCAA tournament. But it's not college basketball. But I think it might be heading that way because partially because of the playoff, but mostly because of the super conferences. And so, you know, you look at the Big Ten title game, right? If you believe the committee rankings, they think the third and fourth best teams in the conference are playing in the Big Ten title game, and I think a lot of people agree with them. So, yes, I, I, I do think you should reward conference championships, but not if you genuinely think... Uh, one that Ohio State's better than than the team that wins the Big Ten. Then why would you artificially? I would give you more weight to that if they didn't play and didn't lose. There was a head to head. I so, don't want to hear. Well, if they played times, Ohio State will win the other nine. That's not the reality. I don't want to go Joel Clatt on you here, but this is you know you got to. I that's my problem. I think Ohio State is a terrific team, but they lost. If we want to do it your way, that's fine. But you got to then you got to change the. Um, then you're not going for the four best. You're going for the four most deserving. And there's a lot of people who are with you on that. That it should be the four most deserving. But as long as it's the four best, I don't think you can put artificial constraints on it. Let me step out of this literally in the way I would say that this is my preference. I, I love what we have now. I think the playoff. I like the playoff more than I like the BCS. I, I, but I under, I guess what I'm saying is I understand why Penn State fans would be really, really pissed off. Oh, I definitely understand level. it. And I think it would be justified. There's always going to be somebody pissed off as long as you're picking some teams and not others. Uh, I have to give credit here. Barrett Salee, who we've had on the podcast before, put it in a way that I'd never thought about it before. He's a very anti-eight-team uh, playoff guy. 
and he put it in a way that I had never thought to put it before, which was, okay, here it is. Eight-team CFP would be five conference champions, group of five champ, and two at-larges. It would favor access over excellence. That's not how this should be done, and that's exactly right. You would, you would guarantee access to champions, and it would be more fair. I, I don't disagree with that. But the great thing to me about college football that's different than any other sport is you can't go 10 and 6, sneak your way in and win the Super Bowl. You can't be a 19 and 13 college basketball team that gets hot as a 7 seed and wins the NCAA tournament. You have to be excellent all year. Ohio State is has been excellent all year. They lost one game on a blocked field goal return for a touchdown. Penn State has been excellent, I would say, for the last two months, but they definitely were not when they lost 49-10 to uh, Michigan and lost to Pitt. And so this system rewards you for being excellent all year. I know, but I'm saying that they did not have a, over 12 games because you determined the division in nine games. Over 12 games. Uh, now, now, granted, they're going to have a 13th game here, but you know, you know my point. We've beaten this into the ground. There was another email question I wanted to get to, and that is James from Asheville, North Carolina. Hi, Bruce. You've spent quite a bit of time working with game TV crews these last few years, and I'm hoping you got an answer. What happens if one of the crew members turns up sick on game day? If Brando gets the flu, do you step in? Or more pertinently, if a sideline reporter gets taken out by the Texas band, who takes the mic? I'll tell you what. If anybody in Tim Brando's crew, especially the analyst, gets sick, you better check Tim's bag for some, <laughs> some toxins. It's a good question, though. If Tim Brando gets so sick to the point he can't call the game, who calls the game? In the case of the two crews I work with this year, Spencer, by the way, used to be like a new, uh, sports and a news anchor. There's no question. This is not a knock on Tim. Tim's really good. And Tim's a pro. And Tim's prepares his butt off. All jokes aside, Spencer could be a play-by-play guy. I am. I don't doubt that he could handle it. He's very smooth, and I think he'd handle it. In the case of the other crew with Joe and Brady, um, you, don't, you, know, you don't have I as think, much confidence in Brady to take over the play-by-play. No, no. Brady prepares really as much as anybody I've worked with. So it's not that. It's just. Just the experience is different. I, I, we would get through it, you know. I think your I crew mean, would be more better prepared for it than some. Uh, I actually think they do have. I, I could be wrong. I think sometimes they do have a contingency plan that would involve bringing in like a local news sportscaster. I think you would be wrong, just because a lot of that that local guy just wouldn't, or local person wouldn't know the producer, wouldn't know, you know, like as far as I know, none of those people have ever worked it. Now, I remember hearing stories like, you know, I remember hearing a Doris Burke story where she liked it, you know, both play-by-play and analysis of a game. But, you know, I mean, football is different. It's almost a four-hour broadcast. That's a really good question. Yeah, I've never heard of us. I've never heard of that happening. I think it's one of those things where unless you're on you know, your deathbed, you're expected to do it. You know, I've heard, you know, guys were so sick that between the commercial breaks, they were going to the bathroom and throwing up. I've heard, Spencer, you know, got really sick during one of our telecasts. I'm on the headset the whole way, and I never knew it until after the game they told me. You know, so I think these guys just kind of power, these people just power through it. But, uh, you know, we used to have a running joke back when I first got to the company that when Brando was working with Joel, that one day we were going to find one of them, like, gags in the second half. I, I now remember the story I was thinking of. It was in the NCAA tournament, CBS, 
somebody, they, I don't know if they were sick or they had a travel emergency. Somebody couldn't make it to the game they were supposed to call, a sideline reporter. And Dana Jacobson was able to, you know, at the last minute, change her plans and get there in time to be the sideline reporter. So, you know, I think they're always aware generally of if something were to go wrong in the 24 hours before. And it's the sideline person, you know, no offense to my sideline brethren, but like if that sideline person got hit by, you know, by a tuba player and was knocked unconscious, the broadcast <laughs> would go on. You know, it's a, it's a, the play-by-play would be the, the different thing. I, I have no doubt my, my current play-by-play guy, Mr. Brando, could, could feel like he could do a Vince Scully on a college football game. And on the other side, let's say if, if Brady got bad food poisoning, I mean, you know, Joe was a college quarterback at one point. I'm sure Joe probably could, could ably fit, you know, step in and do it. After we get done with this podcast, I'm going to actually reach out to our guy Joe Tess and ask him this very question. He'll have an answer because that guy has had many close calls where he, because of his, like, hectic travel schedules where I'm sure he almost didn't make it to a game. Uh, by the way, in fairness, I have no doubt Joel Clack could probably pull it off because he could, you know, he's been a studio host before. I'm sure he could do it. You know, I'm sure it would be a huge pain in the ass, but I'm sure he could he could probably handle it. What about, what about if Chris Fowler got, uh, you know, couldn't get make it to the stadium in time. Could Herb Street do it? I mean, he's a smooth broadcaster. I would, I'm sure he probably could do it too. You know, he know he knows his stuff. He's really well prepared. I mean, guys like that, you know, I think could could definitely do it. I mean, ultimately, it would come down to you have to know both teams, and the and the color guy prepares just as much as the play by play guys to know. Yeah, and remember, you have a spotter, you have a stats guy. I think the hard part is getting in and out of breaks and things like that, and the timing of fall. I think this is one of the more interesting mailbag questions we've ever gotten. I'm going to ask my producer about this uh, when I speak to him tomorrow and say what would happen if Tim got poisoned. All right. Well, hopefully we'll never find out the answer. Uh, as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Hard to believe, but the next time we talk to you guys, the college football playoff field and bowl lineup will be set. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.